0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Two thirds of all data breaches in the last year were caused actually by insiders. And yet, only about 10% of security budgets and activity are focused on insiders.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Joe Payne from Code42. We're going to be talking about insider risks. All right, Joe, let's jump right into some stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us?
2: Dave, my story this week comes from Mark Stone over at Security Intelligence, and he has a story about Frank Abagnale. Mm-hmm. Abagnale mm-hmm. is the con artist who was portrayed in Catch Me If You Can by Leonardo DiCaprio. Yep. Lately, actually, a lot of his story has been called into question by Alan Logan, who wrote a book in 2020 called The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching the Truth While We Can, He's essentially saying some of Frank's claims are not true, but one thing we could say about Frank, he is a good con man because either he scammed people out of or organizations out of 100 or 1.5 million dollars or he had built a career based on telling people that he did.
0: (laughs) So either way. Either way. (laughs) Right. Right. He's not not, uh, built his his career on a foundation of being up and up. Right. (laughs) Okay, fair Uh, enough. So
2: say what you will about him. I still have a little bit of respect for the man. I still have respect for the man, I'll say. All right, all right.
0: Uh, Anyway, the article, it talks about
2: why social engineering works. And one of the sections in the article is who is susceptible. And, of course, the answer to that question is everyone. Mm. Abagnale does have his own security consulting company. So it's nice to hear other people say that that's correct. Everybody is susceptible. Sure. And Abingdale says that people in the enterprise are just as vulnerable as people at home. I have a good explanation for that, Dave. It's okay. that they're still people. Right? <laughs> okay. Their vulnerability doesn't change based on where they're working.
0: Uh, okay.
2: The key point that he makes is that everyone can be scammed. It's not a sign of low intelligence and we need to share when it happens to us. Mm. Uh, I think that is sage advice. The more we talk about these things, the more we inoculate each other about it. One of the other things he says is that the internet is making old scams much more accessible to more people. He talks about in the old days, you had to pick up the phone and call somebody. Now you don't need to do that. You can email a thousand people at once, a million people at once. He has this this concept in his practice of the art, I guess. He calls it the ether. And this is a quote from him. Scam artists put individuals under what I call the ether. Ether is a condition of trust and or even infatuation with what is being presented to the victim. Getting a victim under the ether is crucial to all cons, no matter where or how they are perpetrated. The heightened emotional state makes it hard for the victim to think clearly or make rational decisions. Mm. And to get their victims under the ether, fraudsters hit the fear, panic, or urgency buttons. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things we talk about all the time. Uh, I would also say the greed button, but I think that might fall under the urgency button. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Abagnale goes on saying the effect can be almost hypnotic. A good con man can keep his victim up in the altitude of the ether because once they drop into the valley of logic, the con man loses them, mm-hmm. right? Once they understand this. And we've talked about people who have approached people that they know are in the middle of a con, right? And the con artist is so good that this person is turning against his friends in favor of the con right. artist. Right.
0: <laughs> well, and it strikes me too. What do, you, what do you hear people say time and time again on the other side of a scam when they realize... What has happened to them? You hear them say... I should have known. I should have known. I was going to say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking, right?
2: Right? Yeah. This is more from Frank. He says, to introduce the ether, the con artist asks questions to trigger emotional responses. Once a con identifies the trigger, whether it's good news, bad news, whatever it is, uh, he uses that as part of the pitch to drive you into the heightened emotional state. The questions he asks help him create a target profile that contains information that he can use in follow up calls or follow up interactions I guess to keep you under the ether until he seals the deal mm-hmm. all right so this is very important when somebody starts asking you questions that to me is a red flag i don't know i was maybe i was raised in a more suspicious environment but <laughs> when somebody starts asking me questions I, that kind of puts me off
0: yeah right that kind of it's like they're doing a uh, cold reading on you yeah you know yeah. And I, I've also noticed, I don't know if this has happened to you, you know, sometimes you'll be walking through the mall or something, and there'll be those folks who have the little little carts in the middle of the mall where they try to sell you things. Oh, yeah. And one of the ways they try to hook you in is they'll say, Can I ask you a question? And I always say, No. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, me too. <laughs> and I keep walking. But most people. I will say, be Apparently,
2: like, oh, yes, you can. Yeah, and then uh, I uh, keep
0: walking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. What's the question? You know, and then, well, you know, how do. Do you Are you frustrated with your pockmarked skin? You know, like, <laughs> My a, pockmarked skin? What? Wait a minute. <laughs> you're trying to get inside your head, Dave. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's
2: right. That's exactly what, what, what Abignail is talking about here. Yeah. They're going to say something that fires off an emotion, and then you're gonna, they're going to sell you some unnecessary product for you, I guess. Right. I don't know. Sure. Because sure. you look fabulous, Dave. <laughs> Thank you very much. two red flags and how you can defend yourself from them in every scam he says no matter how sophisticated or amateur or whatever every scam is going to have two things one they're going to ask you for money but you must act immediately Mm. right they're going to put that artificial time constraint that's the uh the time constraint that christopher Hadnagy talks about and two the fraudster is going to ask you for information Mm -hmm. right and this might be banking information social security information or date of birth credit card number all that stuff uh, any any information, personal identifiable information that you're going to need. Uh, there's probably also going to be a timeline with that as well, mm-hmm. artificially imposed. It's important to remember, You uh, Frank goes on to say, that you did not solicit this call or email. Remember, this is something I say. All information must be provided on outbound calls, never on an inbound call. Hmm. Say uh, somebody calls you and they're asking for to verify information, you go, I'm going to look your number up and call you back.
0: Right. Right. I'm not going to call you back at the number you're providing me right, right now. Because right. Because that's surely, or that may be a, a, a fake number. Yes. Yeah.
2: Check out the article. It's a good article. It has a lot of good information in it, although I covered a lot of it here, but still, I think it's good read.
0: All right. Yeah. Interesting stuff for sure. My story this week. uh, This comes from the Fox News website, and uh, it is titled "Real Estate Scam Robs Florida Mom of Sixty Three Thousand Dollars in Life Savings." Said it before. I'll say it again. I don't know what's going on in Florida, but uh, besides Disney World, strange things seem to happen in Florida. It's a big state, actually. (laughs) Yeah, but strange things do happen in Florida. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Maybe it's the heat. I don't know. <laughs> right. uh, but um, this is a, a sad story. It's about a, a single mother of two. She had been working multiple jobs and she had saved up about uh, $63,000 mm-hmm. in order to buy a home. She's buying a, a condo for her and her two young daughters. Got to the point where it was time to settle on the home and the settlement was going through. when She got an email from the title company saying here is where you need to send the information, here's where you need to wire the money for your down payment, and we'll be all set to go. I guess another important point here is that uh, as we've gone through COVID, a lot of these transactions are being handled remotely. Right. Right. We're not getting together in a a conference room and uh, signing papers. It's being Mm -hmm. done electronically. There's actually a term in this story I'd not heard before. They refer to it as wet signatures. Ah, as opposed to Digital. electronic signature, right, <laughs> right, right, right. So this woman uh, goes through the process, transfers the money, and I think uh, you and our listeners probably know where this is going. Uh, the email was not, in fact, from the title company, and the money got transferred to the scammers. Hmm. Uh, what they suspect happened was the scammers had infiltrated the title company's email and were biding their time, waiting for this exact moment when someone is ready to transfer the money and then they insert themselves in the email chain Mm -hmm. and uh, tell them to send the money to somewhere else to the scammers
2: does the story say that the email actually came from the title company's email account it did okay
0: did so they were able to claw back about half of the money okay before the wire transfer was finalized They are afraid that the rest of the money might be gone. Uh Uh-huh. There is some back and forth uh, with the title company as to how – to what degree are they responsible for this? I'll tell
2: you what I think they are
0: responsible (laughs) for, David. I think
2: they're on the hook for all the money that doesn't get clawed back.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's my opinion. Okay, go
2: on. And if this email originated from their – email server. Right. It's coming from inside the house. Right. I don't think there's a judge in the world that doesn't say, this email came from your servers, this is your security issue, and you allowed your customer to be damaged for half of $63,000, pay right. up.
0: Right, right. You you failed to put in proper security measures. Right. And because of that, this is what happened.
2: If anyone at the title company is listening to the sound of my voice right now, <laughs> your cheapest option is to is just to refund the money.
0: Yeah, Evidently, there's some round and round going with whether or not the title company is going to make an insurance claim and, you know, how all that goes. Where well, it,
2: who cares if you're going to make an insurance claim? <laughs> That's an internal process. From the customer's point of view, you have cost her $31,500.
0: Yep. Evidently, all that is still in play. Uh, I will – just as a little side note, uh, evidently this woman has gotten uh, – she she did a, a GoFundMe and thanks to the coverage this story got on Fox News and other places, mm-hmm. uh, that GoFundMe has, uh, has, at the time we're recording this, raised about $20,000. Okay. So I guess, I mean, that could take some of the heat off of the. I, I, to me, she should still go after the title company for yeah. this. Yeah. Take, you know, if she gets $20,000 in from the, or more from the good of, of other people. You know, feeling uh, sorry for her story, then you know, put that in the kids' college fund. Use that right. for good. You know, right. don't donate it to a local charity. All or you can, know.
2: I don't know how Go, GoFundMe works, but can you return the money?
0: You probably can. So uh, she she could offer that, and I'm right. sure many of the people who gave the money would say, "Use this for good." It yeah, a lot of like people a, probably gave like five or ten bucks. So. Right, right, right. Um, But uh, this story includes uh, some uh, tips here for preventing a scam like this. These will be familiar to us and to our listeners. They say, always verify contact information directly and don't just call the number or message the email in an email signature. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you were just saying in your story. Uh, They say realtors should handle the house, but when it comes time to deal with the title company, communicate with them directly. So cut out that middleman of the realtor when it comes time for settlement. Right, because that's um, just
2: a bigger surface area.
0: Biggest surface area, and also you, you sort of you could be playing that game of telephone. right? Never send any money without first verifying the information directly with the person you intend to send it to. Mm-hmm. If this means going to the office in person, do that. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, there's a bunch of comments on this story, and one of the people said that uh, before they hit transfer on the money, they actually got the person from the title company on the phone right and said okay yeah i'm about to hit the button and they hit the button and the person on the other end said okay got it we saw it came through we're good here right and that is
2: the best way to go about
0: it actually i'm just wondering are we getting to the point where we need to bring in a briefcase full of cash <laughs>
2: <laughs> right well i mean there's the old cashier's check that's that's probably more secure than walking around the briefcase full of cash dave yeah. but you know i i like the cashier's check idea
0: yeah Yeah.
2: That's how I did it when I bought my house. I had a cashier's check for the down payment.
0: Uh, And then they say, lastly, always send information only through secure methods and make sure to use two-step authentication for any email or messaging service to prevent hackers from logging in without you noticing. And I would say, you know, particularly for that title company – if they had had multi-factor on their email, that would greatly reduce the odds. Every single
2: title company in this country should use multi-factor authentication on their email, uh, on all their systems if they can, because they are handling large quantities of other people's money.
0: Right. So uh, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Again, that's over from the folks at Fox News. That is my story this week. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Michael, who writes, I've recently started listening to your Hacking Humans podcast, and I'm working my way from the first to the most recent episodes. Ah. Very good. This email came through today, and I thought you could use it for your catch of the day. In the meantime, I'll wait for the Australian dollar to drop lower so the U.S. $35 million will be worth more to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's thinking, Michael. <laughs> Right, right. This email comes from is just says R&D, and then it says anonymous at some crazy email address. Yeah. And the subject is extremely urgent
0: attention required. Mm. All right. And it goes like this. Good day. I'm head of research and development special projects team of a pharmaceutical company. I'm based at the Central Research Center of WHO in Washington, D.C., USA. I have a highly lucrative business venture I would like to discuss with you worth 35 million US dollars. Due to the origin of the funds being diverted from money received from the U.S. government strictly for research and development of the COVID-19 vaccines, I will like to remain anonymous until I'm sure that I can trust you to be my salient partner in receiving and investing this funds on our behalf. I'm still in active service and will not want to jeopardize my career. So if you're not interested, please do not hesitate to delete and disregard this email. However, if you are interested and would like to work with me, simply call me on this secure phone number, which I have Solely set up for this purpose. I will give you more details and my identity once I am convinced that you are willing to work with me. Please do not reply to this email. Regards, Anonymous. Hmm, this is interesting. Number one, uh, do you think he means silent partner instead
2: of salient partner?
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> probably. I find it interesting <laughs> that it's not going to be an email scam. They've, they've got a phone number they can get on to start talking to people,
0: right? And they say WhatsApp also available, right? Interesting. Secure back channel. Communications.
2: WhatsApp has end-to-end encryption, but uh, keep in mind that it is owned by Facebook. Right. Um, right. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. This is a pretty good email. I like the way it's 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 got all the broken English in it and and the things that are just telling red flags. If I was going to try to scam somebody out of thirty-five million dollars and have somebody else help me, I might be willing to jeopardize my career for that. If I've already made the <laughs> conscious decision that I'm going to be a criminal and try to get this. 35 million dollars out. That's walk away money, Dave.
0: Yeah. I guess the the thing that struck me about this one that's a little unique is yeah. uh, where they say if you're not interested, please do not hesitate to delete and disregard this email. So right. it's it, it's sort of that reassurance of, hey, no hard feelings, Right. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not putting the heat on you. There's, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of other people I can get to help me. Right. Right. So really It seems like this one's really relying on greed, yes, um, but not so much on the, hey, you must do this right now part of it. In fact, going the other way with that of trying to put the person at ease. Oh, I'm sure
2: once you get on the phone with them, the, hey, you got to do this right now stuff starts. Yeah, you're probably right.
0: (laughs) You're probably right. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. We want to thank our listener for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. Uh, You can email us to hackinghumans at com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with another Joe, Joe Payne from mm-hmm. Code42, and we were discussing insider risks. Here's my conversation with Joe Payne. Let's start off with, with just sort of an overview here about why this matters. I mean, what, why the increased focus on insider risk?
1: Well, it's a, it's a great question. It's actually, I think, the fastest growing area of, of risk uh, for organizations today, even faster than um, external. You know, We have some data that shows that two-thirds of all data breaches in the last year were caused actually by insiders. And yet only about 10% of security budgets and activity are focused on insiders. And there are really three reasons um, why you're seeing this dramatic uh, increase in insider risk. The first is we've all deployed collaboration technology and sharing technology that has made our employees really productive, which is fantastic. Things like Slack and Teams and Box and OneDrive. These are great technologies for sharing and collaborating, but they also make it really, really easy to share data outside the organization, either accidentally uh, or on purpose. The second thing is that all data is portable today in a way it didn't used to be. If I wanted to steal some information from my company 20 years ago, I would have had to come into the office at night and I would have had to you know, Xerox things and I, I, and I would have known that I was doing something wrong and that um, not only would it be harder to do because I got to Xerox a bunch of files, but um, also I know for sure that this was not the right thing to do. Whereas today I can just drag a file folder from one side of my desktop to the other and all of a sudden I have some of the most important data that the company has. So portability of data is the second reason. And the third reason is employees. Employees are switching jobs today more than they've ever done and that that's the number one risk indicator that you might have a data breach is a, a departing employee 60% of employees say that they took data from their last job to specifically help them in their current job so they took that data from company to company that's 60% that's an incredibly high number of people who admit to taking data so when you combine uh, technology portable data, and portable employees, employees that typically stick around between three and four years in a job, you've got sort of the perfect mix of things that are happening that are creating this insider risk problem. Insider risk is a much broader approach and appreciation of the problem that employees create by moving data around. Insider threat immediately assumes bad intent uh on actors and it's a way to paint the problem as people doing bad things on purpose and we really don't believe in that approach because a lot of the risk created is by accident or it's people trying to just get their job done and they have good intent and so let me give you an example of that let's say i want to share with my boss a document that is sort of a plan for the next quarter and i decide to use my Dropbox account to share that document because I use Dropbox for my kids' soccer team, and it's a really easy way to collaborate on a document and work on it together. And so Mm. I send an email to my boss and say, here's a document, let's work together on this. I've now created insider risk for the company by putting the document in Dropbox, which is likely a non-sanctioned piece of technology in our company, but I didn't do it with malicious intent. And so I think to describe that as an insider threat isn't accurate. To describe it as insider risk is is absolutely accurate. Contrast that with uh, an employee that's maybe leaving in the next couple of weeks and um, they take information like a customer list and they upload it to their Gmail account and send it to themselves. That is also insider risk that has a malicious intent the intent to steal uh the customer list from the company that i'm leaving to take it to the company that i'm going to that would be described as insider risk but also could be described as as an insider threat so Mm. insider risk is a broader approach to the problem but also one that acknowledges that sometimes risk is created by employees who aren't really uh trying to be a threat to the organization
0: yeah, and I mean that. that what it reminds me of is is the notion of you know shadow IT, where people are are kind of creating their own workarounds because maybe using something like a Dropbox folder is easier than the tools that the company provides.
1: Well, honestly, we as a tech and security industry have a little bit of the uh, the blame that we should take in this process because the reason people create shadow IT is because we get in the way of of them trying to do their jobs. So. If you look at sort of how people have tried to address insider threat and insider risk over the last few years, most of that are with solutions that block collaboration, that say, oh, we're not going to let you put files on a thumb drive. We're not going to let you email certain documents back and forth to people. And the way users respond to that is they go around it and they find different Mm -hmm. ways to do things. And so uh, one of the pieces of data that I think is uh, really interesting that we did a bunch of primary research in this area, 51% of employees say that they are being disrupted daily or weekly while trying to do legitimate work. So they're being blocked from doing their job. And so if you get uh, blocked from sharing a document with one of your colleagues, then what you'll do is just find a different way to share it. Oh, I can't email uh, the person through our email system this document, or I can't share it via our sharing technology. So then I'll use Gmail or I'll use Dropbox or whatever, and I'll, I know that I can sort of outsmart you. So. You know, one of the things that we really push people to think about in in a modern world is you really need to create an environment where sharing is okay and sharing is good and people are sharing data, but that they do it within the frameworks that we've created and through the tools that we want them to do it with. And by not blocking them, they're less likely to, to push data around our controls.
0: Well, I mean, let's dig into the framework that you all have outlined here, that your insider risk management framework. What are the key components?
1: Well, there's really just um, sort of five components. And let me just, uh, I'll kind of walk through them very quickly. First, the five are identify, define, prioritize, automate, and improve. And it's a classic security circle where we're just gonna get better in this process um, as we go. But identify is really about monitoring all files, all vectors of exfiltration, and all users. And it's a really different approach than I think people have been thinking about in the past. In the past, people have said, oh, let's identify our most valuable data and then watch it, or our most vulnerable users, or our most risky users and only watch them, or let's only watch a few vectors of exfiltration, like let's watch thumb drives. But Mm -hmm. in today's world, what's interesting is All users have really important data. I mean, all users, whether they're in HR and they have payroll data, whether they're salespeople and they have uh, customer data, whether they're developers and they have source code data. I mean, everybody has valuable data. So watching all users is important. Watching all files is important. It's impossible to accurately identify which files in an organization are are valuable. And so uh, figuring out saying like, hey, we're only going to watch some of them and we're going to leave it up to the users to say, this is an important file. The same users who might want to exfiltrate those files, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so, and then all vectors, that's probably the biggest change is that, look, there's Dropbox, there's Gmail, there's Yahoo Mail, there's private GitHub accounts, there's all kinds of sync and share products out on the market. So users have dozens of ways to exfiltrate data that they didn't have before. So you have to sort of watch all those. So identify is is step one of the framework. Define is step two, which is really defining between uh, trusted and untrusted activity. So for example, if I share a document with you via Slack and you are one of my colleagues, great. Trusted activity shouldn't raise any um, bells. There shouldn't be any alarms for that. That happens 200 times a day across organization or more, depending on how big your company is. So we don't want to get in the way of that collaboration. But if I share a document with another friend of mine who also uses Slack at their company, but they're not in my company, wait, that's an untrusted Uh, domain because it's outside of our organization. I need to Mm -hmm. define that that's untrusted so that we will uh, raise some alarms and it won't block that activity because it might be legitimate, but we will identify it and identify it as risk. Part three of the framework is prioritize, which is how do we triangulate the files, the vectors, and the users to prioritize what insecurity we need to pay attention to. That's best illustrated with an example. So if I have a normal uh, employee what i would call a low-risk employee who's moving a business document via gmail you know what that's probably a low risk thing that that might happen a lot and i'm not going to pay a lot of attention to it but if i have a departing employee someone who's put in their notice and they're and they're leaving and they're moving source code and they're putting it in a private github uh, repository those right. three things, um, and you laugh, but this happens uh, every day,
0: and, and it happens to be encrypted, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, well, that's funny. You mentioned that one. That's it That's that's a. We call that a risk indicator, and and the fact that somebody uses zip files is a a big time risk indicator because hmm. people don't really use zip much anymore, other than to obfuscate and encrypt files that they want to take with them. So that prioritize brings to the forefront. The things like that that we really need to pay attention to. And then automate and improve are the last two steps. They make their common sense steps, which is, you know, we need to look at a right size response. Hey, for the person that's sending that thing via Gmail, let's uh, have the system automatically just send them an email that says, hey, you shouldn't be using Gmail. You know, you should use our standard uh, email system when you're uh, sharing documents or you shouldn't be using Dropbox. We use Microsoft OneDrive here at this company and here's a training video. And then for the person that obfuscated the source code, okay, we're going to automate a case process and start a case and all that kind of stuff. So automating is really important in security because there's so much activity happening. Um, Mm -hmm. In order to handle prioritized events, you really got to automate. And then the last one is improve. And it's just that cycle of constantly looking at, okay, turns out that some of these cases were less important than others, and how do we tune the system? And you'll do that in any system you work at. So it's a fairly fairly straightforward uh, framework. We think it's going to be helpful for people as they address the insider risk problem.
0: How does an organization go about uh, implementing something like this, but then also avoiding, you know, those unnecessary speed bumps or hurdles or roadblocks that, I mean, even just, you know,
1: come with change? I think one of the most important things that we we talk about the three T's of addressing insider risk, and the first one is transparency. So as you point out, organizational change is challenging, and one of the things that security teams sometimes don't think about first, because in security, we often are not transparent. We want to be stealthy. We want to quietly uh, sit in the shadows and watch for activity. But in this case, in the insider risk problem, you want to be transparent. You want the organization to understand exactly what you're monitoring and why. So we monitor all files that leave the organization and go to untrusted sites. That should be something that organizations communicate about to their employees. That in itself, just being transparent will not only earn trust, but it will also slow down the exfiltration that's happening. Because mm-hmm. many organizations aren't watching the store and employees know that. It's like, well, everybody else, when they left, they took all the data. So how come I can't take the data? And so letting <laughs> them know that you're going to watch the store, I think is super important. So the second T is training. And and it, it sounds obvious, but a lot of employees today don't know what they own versus what the organization owns. Hey, i built that uh, little widget, um, it was my source code, I wrote it, so I just wanna take a copy of it with me when I go to my next job. Or I worked on those prospects, that's my pipeline, my sales pipeline, so when I leave this company and go work for our competitor, I wanna take that pipeline with me. No, that's not allowed, you you know, you know, were paid to do those things and the company owns that information. So just some basic training on um, what is intellectual property and what you're allowed to take with you Um, or what you're allowed to use outside of work is really important in addition to we find all the time that people don't realize oh wait we're supposed to share documents using g drive or onedrive or box i thought we were supposed to do it with dropbox it's like no so training super important and then the last thing that last t is technology having the right technology in place in order to monitor will put teeth in the policy and and help people understand that oh wow people are watching this store and if somebody does do things there are consequences for taking data
2: all
1: right joe what do you think
2: good interview some interesting points come out of this. Two thirds of data breaches were caused by insiders. Mm. I'm not surprised by that, actually,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. especially
2: with the nature of our podcast, right? Yeah, uh, that doesn't mean that two thirds of these breaches were caused by malicious insiders. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Right. The collaboration technology is a is a real vector for these things. He talks about Slack. I mean, I I have Slack at my office, and I'm actually on a couple of different channels that that are outside of my office, that are you know outside of my domain, where I can collaborate with other people in different environments now i don't send files to him but i sure could yeah the tool lets me do it yeah it's interesting and the other thing he says about this is that data is much more portable and the point he makes about 20 years ago you would have to either well maybe maybe 25 or 30 years ago you'd have to make copies of everything mm. physical copies you'd have to know that you were doing something malicious in order to do it and most people actually aren't malicious Right? right? That's why society works. That's, that's part of human evolution. We, we, we generally <laughs> right. try not to take advantage of each other. There are a few of us that do, Yeah. but generally we don't. The risk factor was much lower back then, but now with the combination of, of the data being very portable and the technology being so readily available, these kind of things happen all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, insider risk versus insi- insider threat. I think that is a really important distinction. Uh, I'm not sure that the subtlety is going to be apparent to your insiders. So careful with the language you use to talk to your people. Mm-hmm. Don't say, we're going to mitigate some insider risk because immediately they're going to think insider threat, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, what, don't you trust us? Yeah. Um, he talked about the IT department. Sometimes the IT department is called the NO department, right? Mm-hmm. Can department I do this? No. no yeah. right? <laughs> uh, well, people will get around your systems. Yep. Right. Yep. And shadow IT. Exactly. And yep. one of the things you have to remember is that IT is something you do for people, not to people. <laughs> right? Yes. And it's you're, you're trying to provide them with the ability to get their job done. And if they're coming to you and asking you for a way to, to move files, be receptive to that. Mm-hmm. All right? Say, let me get something up and running. You probably already actually have that. If you have... If you use a Microsoft solution like Office 365 or Microsoft 365, whatever they're calling it these days, you probably already have OneDrive, which is a great file-sharing solution.
0: Google has their version. Google has, you know, there's Dropbox. I mean, there's there's no shortage of them available. Yeah.
2: When he's talking about his five-point plan, the identify, define, prioritize, automate, and improve, one of the most key points that we talk about here in identify, everything is valuable. Mm. Right, there is no such thing as information that doesn't have value, mm-hmm. and try to distinguish between benign and, and malicious behavior. Yeah, you know, I guess that's what his company does. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably the uh, the business model, and then prioritize because you can't watch everything. You know, I think it's going to be in the future. It's going to be a lot easier to watch everything with the development of AI tools mm-hmm. and machine learning. <laughs> uh, one of the most interesting things I I thought about this interview was that he says zip files. Nobody uses zip anymore unless they're going to obfuscate and exfiltrate data.
0: Yeah. I don't know about that. I, I mean, I guess for, for me, being an old timer, a lot of times we would zip files up so that the file type would go through. Right. You know, sometimes when you transferred things online, something would get lost in the translation.
2: Well, a lot of times we would have, uh, we'd be sending code back and forth. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't we couldn't put it in, in just send the code, right? Because first off, it's a big project with a lot of files. Right. But if the code came through or there was an application, you know, compiled application in the email attachment, the email system would strip it off.
0: Yeah. So we right. would zip it. Right, right. And so I suppose it's, you know, this is, could very well be an example of me uh, continuing along with old thinking that really doesn't apply anymore. Like Right. Uh, the systems probably just handle anything you throw at them and you don't need to zip things anymore well now
2: instead of zipping it you put it in a code repository like github he talks about the three t's the transparency technology and training and i want to focus on the human aspect here the transparency you absolutely want to tell your employees what you're watching and why nothing will make your employees hate you more than showing up and saying hey we noticed you moved this file up to an unapproved sharing system Mm -hmm. uh you're watching that kind of stuff, yeah, tell them. Tell them that. Put that right. in the uh, acceptable use policy. <laughs> right, you know? right. Make sure that they get training on it. Make sure that they know. That way, when you come and you say, hey, you moved this to an unapproved uh, sharing platform, they go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Let me pull it back down. Yeah. They realize that's their mistake. Fairly, uh, if you don't tell them that, how do they even know that's a mistake? Frankly, that's not their mistake.
0: Yeah. I have an acquaintance uh, who uh, I know through a, a volunteer organization that we both work with, and uh, and he's a business owner. And uh, through COVID, when his employees went to work at home, he installed every possible kind of monitoring software on their computers that was available, like right. you know, webcams, you know, timers, mouse movements, like everything. And he comes back to talk to some of us, you know, other people who, who've had business experience. He says, I don't understand why I have so much turnover compared to my competitors. And we're like, hmm, I don't know. What a mystery. Right. You know? <laughs> that <laughs> so is a uh, the point completely think, different problem. <laughs> there, there's a fine line here. And I right. think, as you say, tell people what you're doing, why you're doing it, and and get buy-in. Don't just say this is what is happening and here is why and you know we are watching all the time. Make say these are the things we're trying to protect against and these are the things we put in place. Right. And let them be a part of the solution. Maybe they have suggestions or they can come to you and say, you know, I think that's a little intrusive and here's why. And so at least you're having a conversation and you're being collaborative. It's right. not just uh, uh, you know something coming down from the, the boss mountain. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Boss mountain. <laughs> All right. Well, our thanks to Joe Payne for joining us. Again, he's from Code 42. We thank him for taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of DataTribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.